Greetings, everybody. What is your primary goal in life? Many people live their lives aimlessly and really never perhaps even think about having a goal. Should we have a goal? And if we should have a goal, what should it be? Mr. Armstrong wrote a book called The Seven Laws of Success, and he said in that book that the first law of success is to fix the right goal. And as Christians, we're told in Scripture that we should have a goal. Not only we should have a goal, but we're told what that goal should be. And notice over in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now he's talking about, in the context here, he's speaking of things of which we have need, but these things, acquiring material possessions, taking care of our physical needs, should not be the overriding goal in our lives. Christ said that we should seek first, in other words, that should be the primary goal, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in today's sermon, I want to discuss this goal and how we can successfully achieve it. Now, one of the pitfalls that many people fall into is having the wrong goal. People become sidetracked and begin walking down a blind alley because they have a false goal. And this includes sometimes even people in the church, people who have come into the church and understand at least some of the truth, and yet they lose sight of what the real goal should be and begin pursuing a false goal. And so I want to first discuss a few false goals that sometimes people pursue, even people among us in the church, and we need to be alert to these possible mistakes so that we don't get caught up in them. Or if we are caught up in pursuing some of these things, we need to take a look at our priorities and adjust them to make sure that we're pursuing the proper goal. Of course, one of the primary goals that people often pursue is wealth or money. And even some in the church have been caught up in this pursuit, the pursuit of money as a primary goal in life. Now, obviously, there are benefits to having money or wealth. And people see that often people who have a lot of money are treated with more deference. And this has happened even in the church, where people come into the church and maybe are fairly wealthy. I don't think we have any have had any super wealthy people in the church, people like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. I've, I don't know of any people like that who have been in the church, but we have had people in the church who are better off than average and even considerably better off than average. And not infrequently, those people are just almost automatically treated with more respect, more deference than people who would not have so much wealth. 
This was even true in the New Testament church, and James remarked about it and warned against this idea of giving deference to people simply because they have more money than someone else does. Notice what he wrote over in James chapter 2. James 2 and verse 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or favoritism. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and the word could be translated vile as well. It doesn't necessarily mean dirty, but tattered clothes or clothes that are not the same quality or as expensive as someone who has a lot of money more plain, ordinary clothes. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So this is a potential problem in any age, including the era of the New Testament church. And it could happen among us, and has happened actually. I've seen situations like this, not maybe precisely the same, but similar, where in some cases people with money have been treated differently than someone who doesn't have a lot of money. Verse 9, it says, If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It is a sin to show partiality, according to James. And we are transgressing God's law to show that kind of partiality. In the church, we are not to show partiality either to the rich or the poor. We're not to show any special consideration to the poor either. We're all held to the same standard of conduct. We all have the same laws that we are accountable for obeying. We all serve the same God. And neither being rich nor being poor is necessarily an indication of one's spiritual standing. The poor are not necessarily more righteous than the rich or vice versa. And sometimes being rich can affect one's attitude if he's not careful, but simply having money or not having money is not, is not an indication of one's spiritual standing before God. Some of the patriarchs became very wealthy. Abraham, for example, became a very wealthy person, and the indication is that his son... St. Isaac also became a man of wealth, as did Jacob eventually. And, of course, David eventually acquired a great deal of wealth. Solomon was extremely wealthy. And there are others who were men of wealth, but yet were faithful to one degree or another. And, of course, there are many who had nothing that also showed their faith. 
So God does not condemn material prosperity or wealth, but he does warn us about making it our goal to become rich. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and, any, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice the love of money is a root, not the only root, but a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness. So notice this can happen to people who have been converted, who are in the church. Some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Notice it says we are to flee this covetous desire for wealth, extraordinary wealth, and not make that our primary goal, but rather pursue righteousness and the things that go hand in hand with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness, and so forth. Now, there are those among us who have prospered in terms of material wealth, and that, again, in and of itself is not wrong. Actually, I've seen that people who are in the church for a period of time often tend to prosper and may not ever become truly wealthy in, in relative terms in, in our society, although in this country we're all relatively wealthy compared to the average person in the world because we live in a very prosperous country, wealthy nation, and even the poor among us are rich compared to many people in the world. But we do see people tend to prosper as they come into the church and they get their lives in order and they learn how to manage their lives in a way that simply lends itself to gaining prosperity and becoming more successful. And it's not wrong to be successful. It's not wrong to be successful in your occupation, to work hard, do a good job for your employer, or if you're running a business, do a good job of running the business, serving your customers, and so forth. And if you do those things, you're going to tend to do well. You're going to tend to make progress, even in financial terms, throughout your lifetime. Not, not always, but quite often. But as we grow in material prosperity, what should our attitude be and our approach? Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. This is one of the pitfalls of having money quite often is it tends to create a, an attitude in people if they're not careful of haughtiness. They begin to think somehow they're superior to or better than others. They, they begin to expect to be treated differently. Because simply because they have money. 
And they also begin to look on themselves as somehow above the rabble or the crowd. And this is often something that is encouraged in our culture and society, or frankly, in just about any society. I was at a museum recently where they had dug up a riverboat from what had been the Missouri River. Actually, the river had changed course, and this boat had been buried. It had had been sunk in the river when it hit a snag and sunk many years ago back in, I think it was around 1840 or somewhere in there. And it was loaded with all kinds of goods that were being taken up river to supply the needs of people living up, up there. But it spoke of uh, people who were passengers on these river boats, and there were essentially two classes of passengers, one on the upper levels, and these were wealthy people. And they had all kinds of very elaborate accommodations, fancy meals and so forth. And then there were the, I guess you could say, the common class of passengers that were on the main deck, and basically that's where they ate and slept and lived during their time on the boat. And they were treated differently. They were often treated roughly even by the the boat crew, whereas the wealthy people were treated royally. And this that's often just how the world is. And that can lead people to be, to become haughty in their in their attitudes to look down on others. But this says that you're not to be haughty just because you have money. And you're not to trust in uncertain riches. That's another pitfall of seeking money is that you tend to trust in riches instead of trusting in God. Do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God intends that we enjoy the blessings that he gives us, but we need to remember who it is that gave us those blessings and trust in him. In verse 18, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. It's ironic that some people, not everyone, but some people who are wealthy are often very reluctant to part with any of their wealth or give any of it to others and or to share with the poor in anything. Now, some wealthy people are quite generous, so we don't want to paint everybody with the same paintbrush, so to speak, but it's not unusual for people who are wealthy to be stingy as well. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's the real goal. The primary goal should be eternal life. And we need to keep everything in perspective with that goal in mind. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus actually several times warned the rich and the wealthy about the peril that they faced if they were not careful about their attitudes. In Luke 12, verse 15, he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Now, we all need to be aware of covetousness. Covetousness is not a sin that is limited to rich people. Anybody can be covetous, and many are, rich or poor. 
Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This is something we need to get clear in our minds. Our lives do not consist in the abundance of the things we possess physically. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying that the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought with him in himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So you have many goods, and I laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Is not rich toward God. So we need to keep everything in perspective in terms of money and wealth and put God first, put the kingdom of God first, put seeking eternal life in God's kingdom before any other consideration. Another pitfall that is common for people to fall into in terms of pursuing goals is that of fame. It's not uncommon for people to want to become well-known, to be recognized, to achieve fame. There were famous men in ancient times whom God destroyed, destroyed their entire civilization because of their wickedness. Notice in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 6 and verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days. This word could be translated mighty men, not necessarily giants, but at any rate, regardless of their stature, they were men of exceptional power and strength, evidently. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and this is not talking about angels marrying men, this is speaking of marriage between the two major lines of human beings that lived at that time, Angels do not have the power to procreate, certainly not with men. But these lines of descent intermingled and children were born, and these were mighty men of old who were of old, men of renown. Now, this uh, word renown comes from the Hebrew word shame and can be translated fame which is a synonym of renown. Renown or fame is essentially the same thing. And in verse 5, it says, Thus then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this was a civilization that was built and being led by these men of fame, men of renown. In verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. God was sorry that he had created human beings because of the wickedness and evil 
that the whole culture, the whole civilization had fallen into. And if you read the context here, you will find that only one man was considered fit by God not to be destroyed. And it was through him, Noah, that God allowed the human family to carry on through Noah and his family. He was the only one, along with his family members, that God chose to deliver from that destruction that he had decreed for that civilization. But these men were famous in their day. So being famous doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to turn out well for you in the end. There were other famous men or men who sought to be famous mentioned in Genesis chapter 11, Genesis 11 and verse 4. This was after the flood and a group of people decided that they were going to build a city and a tower. Verse 4, it says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now the word name here is as it could be translated, is the same word we saw in Genesis 6 and verse 4. It's shame, which means a name or fame or renown. And they wanted to make a name for themselves, to become famous, so to speak, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This was not something that pleased God. And so God confused their language and scattered them abroad. Many people down through history have sought fame. They make it their goal. They go about seeking to be in the headlines, to be in the news, to be the center of attention. And this can happen on a small scale or it can happen on a large scale. It can happen within a small group of people even where people want to be noticed. They want to stand out from the crowd. They want to you might say, have fame. But ultimately, fame among men is empty and fleeting. And it is, as a goal, it is really something very foolish and empty and worthless. Notice over in Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verse 11, their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations they call their lands after their own names. Now, this is quite common with people who seek notoriety as they, they want something named after them. And so we have the custom in our country, I would guess it, it's probably a custom that you could find many other places as well, to have streets named after people, parks, cities, towns, all sorts of things named after various people people who are famous. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. Yes, they may become famous, but their lives are temporary. He is like the beasts that perish. Being famous does not do anything to change your temporary nature. And the fact that you're going to turn back into dust just like every other physical creature. This is the way of those who are foolish. 
and of their posterity who prove their sayings. So the Bible says this approach, this desire for seeking honor and fame from men, seeking notoriety is something that is foolish. And that leads us into the next pitfall we can fall into, and that is seeking the approbation of men, which is similar to seeking fame, but not necessarily exactly the same thing. We might want to seek the approbation of men without necessarily wanting to be famous in the same way, but simply seeking the approval of others in positions of influence. And if we make that our primary goal, then we become willing to compromise values. We become willing to compromise the truth. And we often are willing to behave lawlessly for the approval that we seek. You know, it's it's common for children, for example, one child will dare another to do something that's foolish. And sometimes the child who has dared will do it just to to, to get the approval of whoever it is that is making the dare or other friends that may be around. Something that he knows is, is against his better judgment and that he probably should not do, but he'll do it just for the approbation, the approval of those around him. And this is not a type of behavior that's limited to children. This is quite common among human beings. One of the reasons the Jewish leaders persecuted and rejected Christ is because they sought the approbation of men. They sought the approval of men more than the approval of God. Jesus remarked on this over in John chapter 5, verse 40. John 5, verse 40 said, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The, The one whose approval we really ought to be seeking is that of God and of Christ. If you want to seek someone's approval, and we should actually seek God's approval, we need to look to God and seek his approval. Notice what Jesus said. He said, I do not receive honor from men. Jesus did not go about seeking honor or approval from men. Even men in authority. And that's one of the reasons they disliked him and persecuted him. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you, he said. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you him you will receive. How can you believe you who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? We need to be careful about whose honor we're seeking, whose approval we're seeking. We need to make sure that we are being behaving in such a way as to be approved of God and not be willing to compromise the truth or right values 
in order to have the approval of men. And this is, this is a, a challenge for all of us because this can occur in many different ways out of fear, out of just the desire to please others and so forth. And there are times when, obviously, when we should please others, but not at the expense of displeasing God. Put God first, put God's kingdom first and his righteousness. Another pitfall that some in the church over the years have fallen into is getting the place of safety mixed up with God's kingdom and making the place of safety their overriding goal almost to the exclusion of God's kingdom in some cases. And so going to the place of safety and preserving their own physical lives become their primary goal. And sometimes people have gotten all excited about that and talk about it endlessly and continuously. And sometimes this has been encouraged by ministers. I've known of ministers who have deceive people. I knew knew of one minister, for example, years ago who told people that he was going to be leading a group over to the place of safety and they would be the advance guard, so to speak. They would be the ones who would get there first under his leadership. And supposedly... This was supposed to be in in Petra, in the Middle East. And supposedly there were some luxury condominiums in the area. And these people who would get there ahead of the others would be given accommodations in in these condominiums, while the rest of the people would be stuck in caves and things like that. And there were people who actually had their passports bought and their bags packed and were ready to go. And for whatever reason, they never actually went. But there have been actually people who have gone out to follow, even some ministers who were in the church to various places, thinking that that that's where they they were going to be when Christ comes. They were going to be in this place, which would be the, quote, the place of safety. Now, I don't doubt that there will be a place of protection, For some in the church, the Bible tells us that there will be, but that should not be our primary goal. What we're told is that we need to be close to God. We need to be praying so that we will be counted worthy to escape destruction. And that might include the the Great Tribulation. But the idea is not just be praying that you're going to go to the place of safety, but be praying so that you can be close to God, so that you can be counted worthy of his protection when the need arises, but more importantly, that you may be able to stand before Christ at his coming. Notice in Luke 21, verse 36, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all those things that will come to pass. He's talking about things that would be happening toward the end of the age. But he says, and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray always. We're to pray that we may be counted worthy, not not just pray that we will escape, but we're to pray 
so that we can be worthy to stand before God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul discusses the coming of Christ and so forth. And he says in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for your, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. Now, notice he says we're watch and to be sober. And the illusion, this is one that we see often in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is that of watching. And in the temple, there were people who were given the job of watching at night. This was pretty much true of any city of any size at that time. There were many things to watch for, danger to watch for, and so people knew well what the job of watchman was. A watchman was someone who was supposed to stay awake and be sober to give an alarm if he saw danger coming. And that's essentially the idea that is being expressed in these scriptures when we read about watching. One of the, the primary missions of the church is to watch and to warn to be alert, to warn the people of imminent danger. And that's part of what preaching the gospel is about. But if we're going to warn of danger, we need to be able to see when the danger is coming. And to do that, we have to be watchful and we have to be sober. And we have to be aware of, of the signs of danger coming and not denying that there is danger on the horizon, as sometimes it's done. People, there, there are all kinds of obvious signs of, of disaster coming, yet people want to deny it. Our government was telling us there's almost no chance that Ebola would ever come to the United States. Just a few days later, someone showed up in Dallas with Ebola. And then they also told us, well, with our great medical system and all of our equipment and our, our medical gear and so forth. We know how to handle this. And then a nurse who was taking care of this man wearing all of the hazmat suits and so forth has also come down with Ebola. We can see all kinds of signs of decay and dissolution in our society. We can see things occurring that indicate that we are facing the kind of disaster ahead that God prophesied for us if we continue to disobey his laws. But most people are oblivious to those things. And they want to go on believing that the world's just going to keep going along without much change forever. Now, we don't want to be Chicken Little either. Is that the name of the guy? But I kept crying 
the sky's falling. But <laughs> we, we don't want to overreact, but we do want to be sober. And we want to be warning people that the world needs to repent. And if we don't repent, we face disaster. goes on to say here in verse 8, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and a helmet, the hope for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So what Paul is saying here is that our goal is to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whether we die or we don't die before Christ comes is really not the important issue. The important issue is being in the resurrection, being living together with Christ at his coming. And that's what our focus should be on, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that we can be there with Christ when he returns in the resurrection. And the Bible does talk about protection for some, but it also talks about persecution. And there will be many among us who will be persecuted probably before it's over. And the Bible assures us that there will be a number of Christians who will be martyred at the end of this age. So we may be among those martyred. We may be perhaps among those protected. Frankly, I don't relish spending three and a half years in a desert somewhere. I don't think that's going to be a fit substitute for the kingdom of God. <laughs> so let's not make that our primary goal. Another pitfall that we can fall into is wanting an office, seeking an office in the church. Some desiring recognition and status in the church have made it their goal to become a minister or perhaps a deacon or a deaconess. But if we set our hearts on getting an office in the church, that could ultimately destroy us spiritually, even if we get what we want. We should not get sidetracked on seeking prestige or an office. And Timothy was warned to avoid ordaining into the ministry novices because of the danger that they would be overtaken with pride. And that can happen even to people who are not necessarily novices. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, he is talking about ordaining ministers and what Timothy should be looking for in terms of qualifications. In verse 6 he says, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the snare or the same condemnation as the devil. Being puffed up with pride, that's what happened to Satan. He was puffed up with pride. He became so full of himself he decided that he, he needed to be in charge and he would kick God off of his throne and take over. And Pride can express itself in various ways, but this is something that Paul warned against. And a number of ministers, and some even not in the ministry that I've known in the past, have been destroyed by pride. Having an unsound motive for wanting an office 
can destroy us. Simon Magus, you might remember, wanted to buy an apostleship because he saw the power that went with that office and he wanted that power and prestige. Notice in Acts chapter 8 and verse 18, Acts 8 and verse 18, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he essentially wanted to buy the office of an apostle, but Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor a portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, this, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. If God wants any of us to have an office, he'll see to it that we are placed in that office. But offices in the church are not something we should seek to grasp and take for ourselves in a covetous way. Notice in Hebrews 5 verse 4, and by the way, you don't need to have an office to serve God and use your talents and abilities to serve God and be approved of God. And having an office doesn't make you more righteous necessarily than anybody else. It has really nothing to do with how righteous a person might be or how much faith a person might have or any of those things necessarily. I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with it. A minister should set an example, but one doesn't have to be a minister to faithfully serve God is the point. In Hebrews 5 and verse 4, he, Paul is talking here about the high priest, the priesthood. He's talking about Aaron in this particular context. And he said, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Now, it's God who selected Aaron to be ordained as the high priest. And this applies to other offices in the ministry as well. In Exodus 28, notice we read about Aaron. Exodus 28, verse 1. God said, Now take Aaron, your brother, he said this to Moses, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a priest. So it was God who told Moses to ordain Aaron. Verse 41, So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. So they were ordained to the office offices in the priesthood at the command of God. In Numbers 11, we read about others who were selected to serve in the ministry under Moses as judges. And in Numbers 11, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, 
And the word elder is often used in the Bible of someone who is a leader. Not necessarily it can be used of someone who is an older person, but is quite often used as a title for someone in a leadership position as it is here. And so there were to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there and I will take of the spirit that is upon you and I will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that they may not that you may not bear it alone. So notice that Moses was to select men to be ordained to these positions of leadership and to help him judge the people of Israel. They, they didn't select themselves. They were selected by Moses. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. James wrote that we should not all be teachers. And one of the primary jobs of a minister or priest is to teach. In James 3 and verse 1, says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. The Greek word here is didaskalos, which means a teacher. And sometimes used of, this title was sometimes used of ordained teachers of the law or ministers. And that's what it means in this context. Let not many of you become teachers or ordained ministers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Being a minister whose responsibility it is to teach God's word in an official capacity is a serious responsibility for which God will judge anyone who does that. Even if, even if a person decides to appoint himself to that job and gets up and starts preaching, you know, and there are a lot of people who do that, go, decide they're going to be a minister, and they go out and start preaching. They're judged for that. They're judged for what they say. They're judged for what they teach. They better make sure that what they're teaching is the truth because they're going to be judged if they're lying to people. They're going to be judged for that. And so I don't know that there's any particular glamour associated with being a minister any more than any other kind of teacher. You know, did you think of your teachers in high school or college as real glamorous? Probably not. <laughs> but uh, maybe you did. I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's not uh, what it's all about. It is a serious responsibility to instruct people in God's Word so that they can live in a way that will help them be in the kingdom of God. And... Paul gave to Titus and Timothy instructions about what qualifications should be sought when they were considering someone for ordination. Over in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, Titus 1 and verse 6, Paul's writing about this and he says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop, the word bishop here is 
from the Greek word episkopos, which literally means an overseer. It's a title that's used frequently for a minister. It was used as a title for leaders in the synagogue. It's especially used of one who had charge over an assembly or congregation. And so what he's talking about is qualifications for a minister. And says a, a bishop, a minister, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Now, this, these aren't qualifications for just ministers. These are qualifications for being a Christian. So we, we all should be striving to be fit to be teachers because if you're going to be in God's kingdom, you will be a teacher. We're, going to, we're called to become priests and kings in the kingdom of God. And your duties there will very likely, if you're in God's kingdom, exceed the responsibilities of any minister who, who's around now in terms of the magnitude of your responsibilities. So we should all be striving to meet these qualifications so that we can be fit to serve in God's kingdom. And really whether we're given an office in this particular lifetime or not is not that important. What is important is what we will be doing in the kingdom of God and whether we will be there to do that and serve in God's kingdom. Now in the rest of this sermon, I want to cover some steps that you can take to reach your goal of being in God's kingdom, seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness successfully. First, we need to understand that being in the kingdom of God and his righteousness go hand in hand. We already read the scripture in Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God but he didn't just say the kingdom of God. He said, and his righteousness. Because the two go hand in hand. You, you don't have one without the other. In Psalm 37 and verse 18. Psalm 37 and verse 18. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright because the future of that man is peace. In other words, he will be given peace in God's kingdom. In Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if we want to be in God's kingdom, we need to be pursuing righteousness, not be focused on material pleasures and pursuits. And in Matthew 5, verse 19, Jesus went on to explain more about this. Matthew 5, verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say he'll be in the kingdom of heaven, but he said that he would be considered 
least or of the least in the terms of reputation in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven which tells us that we have have to pursue righteousness if we want to be in god's kingdom and so if being in God's kingdom is our goal. If we want to have eternal life, then we have to be learning what it means to be righteous in the sight of God. We need to be putting into practice the laws of God, as Jesus said here. Whoever breaks God's commandments is not well thought of in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be if you want to be accepted by God, you must obey his commandments. And that's something that we're told over and over and over again throughout the Bible. So pursue righteousness if you want to be in God's kingdom. Secondly, in order to be able to achieve our goal, we ought to focus daily on God's kingdom. If you have a goal, you've got to focus on it to reach it. Otherwise, it's not really a goal. And, or at least it's not one you're going to be successful in achieving. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So pursuing God's kingdom requires us to focus our minds, to set our minds on the things of God's kingdom and not just be caught up in the daily routine of life, the daily affairs of life, as it's so easy to do. We've got to, to consciously focus our minds on God's kingdom and think about it. In Hebrews chapter 2, and I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, although it doesn't specifically name him as the author, there are indications that he did write it, but in Hebrews 2 and verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Notice he says we must give the more earnest heed. If you give heed to something, that means your mind is focused on it. And it's up to us to focus our minds. And he says the danger is that if we don't do this, we could just drift away. If we're not focusing our minds on God's kingdom, then, then our minds are going to be elsewhere. And we'll just drift away from that pursuit. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So we must be careful that we don't neglect salvation. And that means that we ought to be studying the scriptures, studying about God's kingdom and the things pertaining to it, thinking about it as we go through the day and be growing 
in our commitment and in our relationship with God. One of the things that can help us with that, which is the third point here, is pray daily for God's kingdom. Jesus told us to pray for the kingdom of God to come. In Matthew 6 and verse 10, Matthew 6 and verse 10, in this model prayer, Jesus said in verse 10, as we pray, we should include the idea of praying for God's kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this ought not to be a difficult prayer. If you know all of, if you think about all the evils that are going on in the world, it ought to be easy to think about the contrast that God's kingdom will be with this world and pray that God will speed the day when God's kingdom is established on this earth. And you can, there are all kinds of things you can pray in detail related to that. And also pray that God will cleanse you of your sins and grant you his righteousness through the power of his spirit. That He will help you to, to obey and serve him in Psalm 19, Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. In other words, things that are errors that you're maybe not even aware that you're doing that are things you should not be doing. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So we need to pray for God's righteousness, pray for repentance, help us be cleansed of sin. The fourth thing that we can do to reach our goal is to be willing to sacrifice for it. Almost any worthwhile goal requires discipline and sacrifice. And the kingdom of God is no exception. In Mark 10, Mark 10 and verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. The apostles, men who later became apostles, called to be disciples of Jesus, basically left everything. They left their businesses. They left their property. They left their family, families, to travel about with Jesus, be taught by Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they divorced their wives or necessarily sold everything they had, but they left those things behind, at least temporarily, in order to, to pursue a different goal, namely, God's kingdom and so Jesus answered and said assuredly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this life in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life What's important is that we receive eternal life in the age to come. 
Now, if you left a family behind to come into the church, you may have been disowned by your relatives, but you've gained a lot of other brothers and sisters and possibly fathers and mothers and people who were concerned about you and looked out for you more than you ever probably had in your lifetime before. I know that's true in my case. I left behind people I knew who were not happy that I made the decisions that I made, but I got acquainted with other people who, who frankly did a lot for me over the years, have done a lot for me. And friendships and close associations with numerous people in the church who were willing to share and to give of themselves to me and not just to me, but to one another, to others. Because that's the way the church has operated in terms of how the people have related to one another. And yet we can also expect to have persecutions. But the important goal is eternal life. But to have that, we have to be willing to give up things, to sacrifice. First Corinthians chapter 9, and all of you, have, you've done that, left behind friends and associates. That's happened several times in my lifetime already, and probably in some of your lives as well, to pursue God's kingdom. And this that's not that unusual for people wanting to follow God. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul said, Do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. We have to exercise self-discipline. We have to give up things. We have to exercise moderation in order to be in God's kingdom. And so... Being a Christian requires discipline and a life of sacrifice. We have to give up, among other things, conformity with the world. And for some people, it's very difficult. People don't typically like to be different. They don't want to be thought of as different from the crowd. They want to fit into the crowd. And it was interesting, the attitudes of people back when the apostasy became full-blown in, in the worldwide church of God, how many people were so anxious to just go right back into the world and blend in with the world. They didn't like being thought of as different. In fact, that's one of the things that motivated the apostasy to begin with, from what I understand is, there were people in charge who really didn't like being considered different and they didn't like going to religious conferences and sticking out like sore thumbs. Why would they be at the religious conferences to begin with? I have no idea, but 
They didn't like that. They wanted to be like everybody else. Romans 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your honorable service, your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have to forsake the world. We have to leave the world behind. And we have to be transformed into something different from the average carnal person in the world, which is what we all were at one time. Hopefully we're something different now. We can't just float along like flotsam and jetsam with the world if we want to be in God's kingdom. We've got to sacrifice. We've got to be willing to be different. And one of the things we must give up is conformity with the world. The fifth thing I want to mention that we can do to assure our success in reaching our goal is to examine ourselves in the light of God's word and obey it. We need to be examining ourselves daily. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? And this could apply to old men as well, or old women or young women. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? Taking heed is where taking heed means to think about, to focus, to concentrate on something. According to your word, it says, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we need to focus on God's word. We don't study God's word just as an academic exercise. The reason we ought to be studying God's word is to find out what God requires of us, what he wants us to do and how to go about doing it. And then we need to be, be living by it. That's the whole point of studying the scriptures. Examining ourselves in light of God's word and being changed, being transformed with the help of God's word and God's spirit. In James chapter 1 and verse 25, or verse 21 rather, James 1 and verse 21, James said, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. In other words, repent. Put aside your sins and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Notice it says receive with meekness the implanted word. There's, there's several things we need to notice here. First of all, we receive it with meekness or humility. We yield ourselves to being corrected and, and guided and instructed by God's word. And it's implanted. Implanted where? It's, well, it's implanted in our minds and in our hearts if we're taking it to heart. It should, it, God's word should be living in us as we partake of it. It's spiritual food. It becomes part of what we are, or it should. And it is able, it says, to save your souls. 
How does it do that? Well, it does that by changing the way you think and the way you live your life. As he goes on to explain, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, and this can happen, it does happen. A lot of people know a lot about the Bible, but they don't really obey the Bible. They know about it, they read it, they, they may even study it, but they don't obey it. We have to be doers of the word. If you're a hearer, not a, just a hearer, not a doer, it's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, allows it to guide his conduct and his thinking, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And this leads us to the next point, and that is sort of covered in what we just read, but just to focus on it separately is repent, which means go to God and confess your sins daily. Matthew 3 and verse 2, and then try to root those sins out of your life. Matthew 3 and verse 2, here was John the Baptist preaching, and notice his message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if it was at hand then, it's even more at hand now. The natural tendency for human beings is to make excuses, to alibi, to proclaim our righteousness. Remember the prayer of the Pharisee that went to God in prayer and kept reminding God of how righteous he was. He couldn't see his uncleanness and his spiritual defilement. Sometimes we simply refuse to acknowledge our sins because we want to hold on to them. What God wants us to do is confess our sins, and sin is the transgression of God's word, his laws. Men do not define what sin is. God tells us what sin is. And the definition of sin is found in his word. It is transgressing God's word. And so we need to find out what our sins are by studying the Bible and repent. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We, we all have sinned and we all do sin from time to time. But we need to recognize it when we sin and we need to go to God and confess our sins and repent and seek forgiveness and seek to overcome those sins. Proverbs 28 verse 13. Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So instead of trying to hide our sins and pretend they don't exist, we need to confess them and forsake them, and God will be merciful. Finally, 
The final point in terms of reaching our goal is never give up. You won't reach your goal if you only go halfway and then you quit. We must realize we're in a lifetime commitment to God and we must pursue that goal all the way to the end of our lives. Philippians 3 and verse 13. Philippians 3 and verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. None of us have it made yet. If Paul didn't have it made, we sure don't have it made. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many of us as are mature, have this mind. So, we need to have that same spirit, that same commitment. Forget what's past. Forget the mistakes you've made in the past. If you've repented and move forward toward the goal and never quit. Hebrews 10 and verse 35. Hebrews 10 and verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We're not going to receive the promise till after we've shown God that we're determined to do His will. For yet a little while, and He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In other words, if anyone just gives up and quits, turns his back on God's kingdom, God does not take pleasure in that. We are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction. If we draw back, if we quit, we will be destroyed in the lake of fire. But if we press on, no matter how many times we slip and fall and how many mistakes we make, we, we need to, of course, minimize mistakes as much as possible, but we will make mistakes. Well, there will be failures. There will be weaknesses we have to overcome and so forth. But we need to keep pursuing the goal not draw back to perdition, but of those who believe, believe to the saving of the soul. In other words, who exercise faith and continue on against whatever obstacles may lie in the way to the saving of the soul, to the goal of the kingdom of God. Revelation 21 and verse 7, Revelation 21 and verse 7, it says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. We have to overcome. There are obstacles, our own nature, and other obstacles that we must overcome. But if we overcome with the help of God, we will inherit all things. And it says, I will be his God and he shall be my son. That's what it means to be in God's kingdom. So remember that the first law of success is to have the right goal. Our goal is the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And if we're willing to take the necessary steps for success, 
It's a goal that any of us can reach. And it's a goal that God wants us to reach and that he will help us to reach. But we have to do our part.